Good afternoon, Gemma. Good afternoon, Yolanda. Um, I'm Yolanda. I have done local community radio interviews about life in Cambridge, which included music and art before the lockdown. I would like to find out how local musicians are doing in this difficult time with pandemic. Gemma Kawaja? Kawaja. <laughs> how is that? I'm Kawaja. Uh, Kawaja, okay. Yeah. This is an interesting surname that I guess has uh, an interesting story behind. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm so I've I've always lived in the UK all my life, but I'm actually um, mixed race. So my mum is English and my father is from Pakistan. He was actually born before partition, so he was born before Pakistan existed in Calcutta. But when he was about seven, I think partition happened, and so him and his family moved to Pakistan and then when he was um probably about 20 he came to the UK um so yeah he's in his 80s now so, <laughs> so yeah so I've so I've got um a kind of a, a foot in two different cultures but I um it's interesting when you've got parents that are from different nationalities I think I do identify probably more with my English side just because it's where I've always lived but also I'm cut off by language because I was never brought up to be bilingual so that mm -hmm. that I, I've got you know I've got contact with my family in Pakistan and cousins and things but I think when you're not bilingual it doesn't make you feel fully part of a culture so yeah so that's kind of yeah. an interesting thing so <laughs> it's nice though. I like being mixed race it's kind of like I've got my whole life you know as I am um with as I say quite a sort of um culturally I'm quite British But then it's kind of like there's another door into something else which I can open and, you know, engage with that. So that's a nice thing. <laughs> yes. And I noticed that you are with the Cambridge Folk Club. Is this your preferred genre? Is it my, sorry, I misheard you. What did you is, say? Is this your preferred genre? Um, my preferred genre. Um, so I'm a folk musician. Yeah. So folk music is is definitely my preferred genre for singing and for sort of creating my own arrangements or even occasionally writing my own songs, but very much within this kind of folk and folklore genre. Um, I do have a background as a performer, though, but in theatre. So I actually work as a puppeteer in children's uh -huh. theatre. And so mm -hmm. there is sometimes there's a musical aspect in that. So a lot of the shows I'm in, a lot of the children's shows, I have to sing. And so I suppose when I do my puppet shows, my singing's quite different to my folk singing because mm -hmm. in the shows you're playing a puppet character and the characters have different voices. And so when I sing in the shows, the singing is how the character sings rather than how I sing as a folk singer. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so my theatre singing is quite different. <laughs> but it's been good you know you use your voice all the time so I think having the two strands of, they've sort of both developed each other really so I've been using my voice as an actress for many years but I've been singing many years as a folk singer and I think the two have helped each other to develop mm -hmm. and what other types of music do you enjoy um I've got quite a sort of varied taste really so Obviously, I do spend a lot of time listening to archive folk recordings. And then I also listen to a lot of kind of more modern folk music or, or you know, folk music from the 60s and 70s era onwards. So that's just part of my own development 
to do that. But then prior to my sort of main interest in folk, I was really into like electronic music and dance music and things like that. When I was at university and college, I always used to be quite into indie music and sort of all the Britpop stuff in the 90s when I was a sort of young teenager. Um, and I do like classical music as well. My sister plays the flute, so we both enjoy kind of listening to classical music and that sort of thing. So I've got quite, I suppose I've got quite broad taste and then things I listen to now. So I often, I find myself a lot of the time listening to um, various radio stations, Radio 6, because that plays a lot of new music. I really like Sleaford Mods, which people will probably find <laughs> surprising for a folk musician, but I, I just really like them, partly because they're from Nottingham area, which is where I'm from. But also I just think politically they're very switched on and they're amusing as well. And they, you know, they, their gigs are really good. And so I enjoy that. <laughs> so yeah, I've got a, a varied, a varied palette of music. Good, 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 good. Um, when did you discover that you love folk music? Um, it's a bit of an interesting journey, really, because as quite a young child, my my mum was always playing her records and singing along to them, and amongst her records, she had a lot of music by, I suppose, what I would now call um, American folk singers, but more of the kind of revival, and they were more the songwriter people, so Simon and Garfunkel and Bob Dylan and Joan Byers. So Joan yes. Byers, um, there's a record that my mum had, a portrait of Joan Byers, and she used to play that quite a lot and sing along, and I used to sing along too, and the, the record's quite interesting because it's a mixture of Joan Byers's arrangements of traditional English folk music or, you know, or British Isles folk music, Scottish tunes and things. But also on it, Joan is doing covers of Bob Dylan or covers of Donovan and various people. And so from a young age, I then was listening to this and learning to play the guitar. And I was doing covers of what Joan Byers was doing. But at the time, I wasn't really aware of, of you know, folk music of the British Isles. And so I wasn't really differentiating between Joan Byers singing a Bob Dylan song and her singing, um, you know, a classic um, mm -hmm. staple from the English folk repertoire, such as Trees Grow High. And so I didn't really learn about the British Isles folk scene or the English folk scene particularly until much later. So it's probably the last sort of 10, 10 years or just over 10 years since I got interested in the UK folk scene And that came about because I'd always played the guitar and sang, but mainly um, doing covers of whatever I was interested in at the time, or even things like Joni Mitchell or those kind of singer-songwriters. Um, and then there have been periods in my life where I really sort of stopped playing the guitar and stopped singing because I've been busy with other things or interested in other things. But as I say, about, it's probably maybe a bit over 10 years ago, 10 to, 10 to 15 years ago, and it was just about, the time when the internet is how it is now. So you can search things, search music online. And I just had this like overwhelming desire to sort of sing the songs like Joan Byers had been singing and things like um, Georgie and Trees Grow High and that sort of song. But I didn't still, I didn't know they were these traditional folk songs. And I think I actually just did an internet, a Google search for something like folk songs about snow or, or something really random and that, <laughs> led, that led me to discover a British folk artist who was called Anne Briggs and Anne mm -hmm. Briggs she grew up 
in near Nottingham in a town called Toton, which actually caught my interest straight away because that is actually the town next door to the town that I grew up in. And I discovered Anne Briggs music. And the wonderful thing about the internet is as soon as you find one thing, so with that I found Anne Briggs as one folk artist. I didn't know anything about her. And then suddenly I found that, you know, she'd lived in when she, you know, when she was born, I realized she was about the same age as my mom. And suddenly I was aware that there was this whole English folk music scene that had been happening at the same time as in America, there was all this stuff happening. And I think I found Anne Briggs and then suddenly that quite quickly leads on to other mm-hmm. artists who were the similar age to her and were doing similar things at a similar time. So quite quickly I got into the music of Nick Jones and John Kirkpatrick and Shirley Collins oh. <laughs> and just the whole <laughs> and Martin Carthy and this whole kind of plethora of of really great English folk musicians. And then, you know, that that kind of took me away and still, you know, still discovering new stuff and various things and you just go on such a listening journey so I listened and listened and listened to all of that and just it just kind of fills you up so much and then the great thing is is you have a period of like you're discovering all the artists of that era you know within England within Scotland yeah. the British Isles and yeah. then then you kind of go to the next level is you you're looking at well where did they learn the songs from and so I got into really reading sleeve notes and books and various things and you see you know how they learnt the songs and often there were these old archive recordings of Mm -hmm. of when folk collectors collected so people like Percy Granger who collected Joseph Taylor of Lincolnshire in I think it was about 19 really early 1900s so these old cylinder recordings of this basically an old man singing in a pub and thank goodness for Cecil Sharp House and and for the books and the collections of folk music that exist today so that people can learn from them and keep the songs alive. That's so, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so, so there you go, <laughs> big answer to your question, but it, it's... <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. Then how long have you been actively playing this wonderful music? Um, as I say, it's probably about 10, 10, 10 15 years. years. So, because as I say, I, I kind of... I think, you know, the first time I sang a traditional folk song, it would have been when I was about 11 or 12 years old. So that's quite a long time ago. That's over 30 years ago. But, um, but I, uh, you know, to the discovery for me of English folk music and the British Isles folk music scene and then learning those songs and beginning to play, that's probably, as I say, about 10, I don't know, 10, 12-ish years ago. And so I just quietly got into that and started learning all these songs. So then I was, you know, the way that when I was a child, I was learning um, songs that Joan Byers was singing. Then suddenly I'm learning the songs that Anne Briggs is singing or the songs that Nick Jones is singing and all of these kind of things. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was kind of, you know, kept me happy for a few years and you start to make your own arrangements. You discover more and more songs. Um, But then I suppose another sort of big thing that happened to me is uh, I think a thing that's quite important is is having some kind of local scene to connect with or having other musicians that are of your peer group and of a similar age to you. So mm-hmm. I then discovered that there were folk sing-around sessions in my locality, so often in, in various pubs or there were folk clubs that would have a guest, but they'd have like an open floor for the first part mm-hmm. of the evening. Mm-hmm. And so I started, it was probably, again, around... 2012-ish or 2013-ish so again getting on for about 10 years ago I started just to 
look up on the internet where were these sessions of things and I found various ones in my locality and I started going to them and it was it was all very varied but it was really interesting and I started to meet more people and then what was another sort of breakthrough is because I I mentioned about the fact that I work in theatre I'm a puppeteer I mentioned (laughs) earlier to you yes and that takes me on tour all around the UK and so once I'd realized that within my locality there was this kind of local folk scene and folk sing-around sessions or tune sessions that would happen in a folk club context or in a pub or somewhere once I realized that was happening all around Norfolk where I live um, I suddenly realised, well, that happens all over the UK. And so when I was on tour with my puppet shows, I then started to look up if there were folk sessions in the area. And mm-hmm. that's how I first came to Cambridge Folk Club, I think. I was doing a show there and I thought, or I was driving back from London after doing a show and I thought, well, I'm going to look in at Cambridge Folk Club and, you know, start to plug into the Cambridge music scene. Yeah. Um, so that's been really good. And then another thing that happened as well was... Um, I think it's quite important to have musicians of your own. So I was meeting a lot of people, but a lot of people were of the older generation who the kind of, you know, the last time round that there was a folk revival in the 60s, 70s, they were of that kind of age. So kind of the same age as my mum is. And mm-hmm. that's really lovely meeting all those people. And I love the sort of intergenerational thing. But I think it's also very important to meet people your own age when you're interested in something because... Mm-hmm you connect with your own peer group in a different way. And so I think it was about 2013 or 2014, I had the good fortune to meet a Scottish musician who is a similar age to me, who's called Alistair Roberts. And Mm -hmm. we met in a bit of a random way. We met because there was a puppeteer who was working in the same organisation I worked for at the time, um, which was Norwich Uh Puppet Theatre. And this puppeteer was also a drummer and when he knew I was a folk musician, he said, oh, I've been doing some drumming for a musician in Scotland called Alistair Roberts. You should listen to his stuff. And I did. And it was just so interesting because his stuff is <laughs> you know, a mix of traditional music and, you know, his own arrangements of folk songs. But he's also an incredibly good writer. And so he was writing um, his own songs, but they really had this kind of quite a strong root in folklore and that kind of folk music um Mm -hmm. feeling and so it was just really interesting and then he was doing a tour around Norwich so we met um and that kind of opened a door really to meeting other musicians my own age which is Mm -hmm. which has just been a really lovely thing because then you feel that you've got your own community that you're part of um yeah so it's good to (laughs) yeah it's good the friendships that music can lead to I think it's a really good thing I think I really think uh, that uh, friendship, make, making friendship uh, can connect you and um, also with the music. Um, could you tell me a bit uh, about what inspires you to write poetry and turn them into the song? So with writing, I'm, I don't write very much, I have to say. I've written a few songs, but it's... Um, the problem I have, I think, because I'm, well, before lockdown, so I was so busy with my puppetry work that my music was very much, you know, not the main part of my life. It's something that I just do. And so what I've found with writing is it's something I can do, but I really need focused time and space to do that. And unfortunately, in because I'm not fully making my living out of being a musician, I uh-huh. just can't give it the time and space it needs most of the time. Occasionally, people have asked me to contribute a song or something to a project, 
where I mm-hmm. paid for it. And then then I'm able to do it because I know well, I'm getting paid for this so I can allocate time to do this. But in the mm-hmm. general, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a natural writer. So the way that with some people, poetry and writing is bursting out of them all the time. But I realised I'm quite a good um I'm a good arranger, so I'm quite good at listening to old folk songs and rearranging them. And I'm quite good at taking ideas from folk songs and turning them into something else. And then also a lot of the the sort of, I suppose, original music that I've made, it's been amalgamations of things. So a bit similar to what the musician Peter Bellamy did when he set Rudyard Kipling, Kipling's poetry to folk tunes. I did a bit of mm-hmm. a similar thing. The funny thing is, at the time I did this, I hadn't really heard of Peter Bellamy, so I didn't know that he'd done this already, but I I, I got really interested in the poetry of a guy called Robert Herrick um, mm-hmm. and of John Clare as well, and I started mm-hmm. in about 2013-ish, um, I started to set some of their poetry to tunes. Um, I think one of the first songs I made in that way was a thing that I, I called it what will ye my poor orphans do and it was taken from the several poems by Robert Herrick but very much in the style of a kind of a mother's prayer wondering what will happen to her children when she's not there and so I took some direct lines from Robert Herrick's poems and I reordered them I put them together with different things added some interconnecting words of my own and then I used a tune which I'd come across um, which was actually a French um, folk tune. It, it was a Cathar hymn called Le Bouvier. And for some reason, it just really fitted. I'd been listening to that just independently of this bit of writing I was doing. But then mm-hmm. somehow the two things collided in my head and the words I was writing composed out of Herrick's poetry. They just fitted this tune perfectly. And I found that that happens quite a lot with me is that often I'll have, I'll be working on one thing, say, reading a book about something or writing something but listening to various other music and somehow ideas then just collide in my head and I can wake up with a kind of mm-hmm. the two, two things have joined together that weren't joined before it just somehow happens yes it's yeah. good <laughs> good very good <laughs> um your latest release the deserted lover so beautiful is this one of your own songs? And no, this so, is no. This is a traditional folk song. Um, okay. The, the arrangement, um, the tune is also traditional that I've used. So this, this. Yes, um, I, I saw that there is an interesting sound. Which yeah. So I mean, this is the interesting thing with folk music. You can take something that's very traditional and that originally would have just been sung with no instrumentation. And you can add to these things and you can adapt them and you can change them and you can make them really contemporary. So this song, The Deserted Lover, actually came out of a project. So this was a commission, an arts council project, which the Invisible Folk Club, which is John Bickley and Steve Yarwood, absolutely wonderful guys. They do so much going around doing podcasts of people and promoting people's music. They're very good mm-hmm. at finding obscure people like me. <laughs> so <laughs> they, I'd, I'd done a few podcasts for them in the past and occasionally they do a Christmas show where they put a call out for people to create um, a Christmas folk, you know, to add, to send them in a recording of a Christmassy song um, from the folk tradition. And I'd sent them, over the years, I'd sent them a couple of things in, but I'd always um, pick a traditional song and sing it, but I'd add, I'd add something to it in the way that I record it because um, I'm really into storytelling. And so I'd, yep. you know, 
do things like that. So anyway, over the years, I've built up this friendship with both of them and with the Invisible Folk Club organisation. And then just kind of out of the blue, they got in touch with me and they said, we we have been researching a project about Bedfordshire lace makers. Um, so the, largely it was sort of women and children who used to hand make lace many years ago. Um, and they often it's a really time consuming task and they didn't really get paid very much for it. So it, there was a lot of poverty in the lace makers trade and they, they'd been, anyway, they'd been doing this research and they'd actually applied for funding to the arts council to conduct a product, a project into Bedfordshire lace makers. And as part of the project, they wanted to commission a few musicians. So myself and John and Catherine Earnshaw um, were the main three. They wanted to commission us to make, um, some music about the lace makers but based on traditional songs so as part of the research that John and Steve had done about the lace makers they found a lot of snippets of old folk songs that lace makers perhaps used to sing whilst they were working and so there were some fully formed songs so the deserted lover was one of them but then there were also these tiny little snippets of rhymes rhythmic rhymes that perhaps they used to sing whilst they were sewing and making the lace and so I think we did about two songs each. So I did The Deserted Lover and then this these things that they called them lace tells, these little lace chants that the, that the workers used to do. And then I amalgamated various lace tells and made another one. So The Deserted Lover was the entire song I was given. And it's quite a known folk song in the folk tradition, but it goes under different names. It's a song, lots of the verses reoccur in different songs so you call those floating verses so sometimes the song is called died for love um ver various different names um because these these kind of motifs that reoccur in other folk songs so they gave me a set of the words which they'd researched as being words that bedfordshire lace, lace makers sang so i used that set of the words and then I had the choice of either putting an original tune to it or using an existing tune. And because it's a song, as I say, that occurs in the kind of tradition of folk song and there were different verses appeared in different songs, so there were loads of different tunes that I could have selected. But I picked one which um, is in kind of quite a minor key, but mm -hmm. I, it's one that I already used to sing. I used to sing mm -hmm. it unaccompanied. Um, and once I got the tune, I the arrangement is actually a dulcimer. So it's one of a, a ham, a, not a hammer dulcimer, a mountain dulcimer that sits on your lap and you strum. And the way I created the arrangement is the way I create a lot of my arrangements is I, I start off um, maybe just sort of recording a basic riff on one instrument. And then I just do funny things with it, with my editing. I <laughs> I kind of do a thing called double tracking where you layer up that same track so it gives it a kind of ghostly quality um and then obviously I was able to then add harmonies to my vocal part and I was able to just add more instrumentation the interesting thing about the track is it sounds very percussive based so it sounds like there's lots of percussion on it but there actually is no actual percussion what it is is um it's magic one, well, it's, it's, it's the dulcimer because the dulcimer, the way that you play it, you can play it with a stick and with a plectrum. And so I was striking it quite hard. So it made a percussive sound. And then because I did this double tracking thing with it, so where I, you know, I used the main 
the main sort of tune track of the dulcimer but then I duplicated it several times and on the duplications I applied some kind of echo and different effects to it Mm -hmm. and so the different effects make it sound very percussive and I really like that so I got really into layering it up and then I think I added like drones and different sounds from a shruti box and from I've got a concertina I don't really play the concertina but I can play single notes on it so I just add single notes and then I'm very I found I was quite good at um I'm I'm not a natural instrumentalist but I'm quite I've got quite a musical ear so I Mm -hmm. can in I I use a soft various software but in my software I'm quite good at editing things so if I if I've got a tune in my head which I can't play I'll just play the single notes and then I'll edit it into a tune (laughs) so so yeah I think that's what happened with that it's a way to make magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also love your songs you played at the Life Folk Festival. Some harvesting songs, like Barley Straw, One Night as I Lie on My Bed, Leaves on the Woodland. Tell oh, me a bit more about these songs. Um, so though a lot of those are, as I say, traditional songs. The one, the last one you said, The Leaves in the Woodland, that's actually um, a song that was written by Peter Bellamy. Um, so Peter Bellamy used to live in Norfolk and he made, um, sadly, he's no longer around. He took his own life, which is so tragic because he was a very, mm-hmm. very talented person. And mm-hmm. he made, he used to sing a lot of traditional songs, but um, I think I mentioned earlier he set a lot of Rudyard Kipling poems to music, but the song "The Leaves in the Woodland" um, I particularly love it because it's from he made he made a kind of um, an, a kind of folk opera um, which was called "The Transports" and it was based on the hist- um, on true history of um, a story that happened in Norwich. So in Norwich Jail, it was a story. Um, about transportation so people were punished in the past if they did something wrong they were transported abroad to Van Diemen's land or Australia as convicts and so this is a true story about a kind of a love story really about a couple um, who have a child together but they're transported and they're parted but eventually they're united and so this the um, the leaves in the woodland is a song that is sung in this opera um, and it's kind of often called the mother song and it's really about you know the the, the women um, grieving about the men being transported and sent away. Um, so it's a really beautiful song. Um, so that that's that one. The Barley Straw is quite a controversial song in some ways. It's called A Song of Seduction. Um, yeah. but, um, but there's a kind <laughs> of, there's a, a bit of a, I don't know, a, a, a kind of issue that comes up with folk music today is that, there are things that happen in folk songs which are unacceptable there's racism in folk songs there is sexism there's all sorts of things like that and Mm -hmm. so sometimes there's a question about well should we sing these songs now Mm -hmm. and the barley straw is one of those because even though it's told in a kind of good sporting fun kind of way really the essence of the story is that the lord of the manor you know the squire is is basically seducing the farmer's daughter which which is rape which is a dreadful dreadful crime um and the song is told in a very jolly style we don't know if there's no line in it where the daughter protests but there's very much in the song about the squire um deliberately setting out 
to um, sleep with the farmer's daughter. So it's kind of an interesting song. It's told in a jovial style. Um, and so people often say, well, why would you sing this nowadays? Does this song condone rape? And I suppose my answer to this really, you know, quite a tricky area, and it's the same, you know, when songs are racist, should we sing them now? And my feeling about this is that if you don't sing them, it's a form of censorship. And I'm kind of quite against censorship because the thing with censorship is it brushes things under the carpet and it, you know, shuts things down. So my my argument is if I sing this song and it's challenged by anybody, it opens up a dialogue and a conversation about what is actually something that is really an important issue that should be talked about openly. If I choose to censor and I don't sing the song, then that conversation can never happen. So I I don't think we should censor the past. I don't think we should excuse people's attitudes of the past just because we are different now. I mean, I find it interesting. A lot of folk songs are very racist about gypsies and they're very racist about Jews as well. Mm-hmm. And what that highlights to me is that's a social attitude of the past that people had and they shouldn't be excused for that. You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't stop singing this in some kind of apology for how people believed mm-hmm. in the past. It's a fact mm-hmm. that people were racist. And the really desperately sad thing is that people mm-hmm. aren't still racist now. So for me, I think it's even more important to sing these songs. And interesting things about the songs with sex in or the songs of seduction is often they're more in the form of a cautionary tale. So they're more, so I find them interesting that in that respect, that they're more, and they're not necessarily condoning the actions of the characters in the song but they are often portrayed in this sort of form of a cautionary tale so again I think that's quite interesting there's lots of sort of warnings to young women in folk songs and um, but then there's also lots of warnings to young men as well about you know the dangers of being promiscuous and things so I think I think it's a really interesting and rich genre I think that sensitive issue, issues are raised in folk songs but I think that that's actually important and it's important to um, sing these things and to be prepared to maybe be attacked by people for singing them but to have an answer and to be open to a conversation about it and and I think that that is why the folk songs are still relevant because they touch upon so many important issues that are so relevant so they you know they talk about love they talk about death infidelity all sorts of things which are real things that happen in the world and you know they talk about racism they talk about rape and all these kind of terrible things that we feel like they shouldn't happen in the world but the reality is that these things do still happen in the world and it's not right that they happen but they do still happen so I think it is therefore still important that these folk songs have this kind of relevance and that by singing them you can open a conversation about these things. Yes, in fact, very, very important and definitely something to think about. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So that's the body straw. I mean, I have to say the body straw is one of my favorite songs still. So <laughs> I love the tune of it and I and and the way it's told. I mean, it's it's kind of awful, but it, it is told in the way of of um I always imagine it as a song that a man would sing in a very sort of kind of showing off about their prowess kind of way. Um, which again is an interesting thing in itself. I mean, we we have big conversations now about gender and gender mm-hmm. roles in society. So I think that that's I think it's important that you get these levels of gender stereotypes, stereotypes and portrayals in folk songs because it gives mm-hmm. you something to as a comparison point for um, for for today and 
you know, it op- again, it opens up a conversation. It's like, well, yes, these are the stereotypes. Is this right? Is this wrong? We are luckier now that we are more free to be how we want to be. Um, and I think it's important to appreciate that. Um, yeah. So that's good. So, uh, <laughs> a way to make people think through the music. Yes. I hope yes. so. I mean, I think yes. I do wonder why. I mean, some of the folk songs are you know, demonstrated through um, documentary, you know, documentation evidence of broadsides and things, you know, they've been demonstrated to be, um, you know, at least a couple of hundred, if not more years old. It's very hard to prove how old some of the songs are, because if you're looking at something that's an oral tradition, it's hard to find, you know, hard facts of how old is something. But with the evidence that there is from broadsides and chapbooks and things which go back to the 1700s and, you know, even before, some of the folk songs that are around in repertoire now, you know, they're, they're a few hundred years old. And I think that that is just so interesting that they have endured this long. And my feeling for why that they have, you know, the repertoire has stayed popular Um, is because they're relevant even you know they might be a bit archaic but when you get to the heart of what the songs are about the themes you know the really deep issues in them they are all the things you know about the condition of being human and being alive and the -hmm. conflict and the 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 tender and the terrible aspects it's kind of all there so I think that's why I think that's why they're still around these folks yes yes good 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 um Gemma, you're based in Chroma. I am. Uh, <laughs> so do you have a strong connection to Cambridge? Were you here before the lockdown or a frequent visitor? Um, just kind of a visitor, really. So, I mean, Cambridge is part of East Anglia, just about. It's on the cusp. So Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex and Cambridgeshire are kind of the same region. They're all kind of the east. Um, but I've been based in Norfolk for over 20 years. I'm from Nottingham originally, um, was born in sort of 1978 in Derby and grew up in a town just between Derby and Nottingham. And then I left home when I was about 19 and moved to Norfolk to come to university. And Cambridge is just, it's a very short train journey way. So it's been a place I've always visited. And as I say, in the last, the sort of last 10 to 15 years, I've engaged with the Cambridge music scene prior to lockdown. So because of my touring puppetry work, we used to tour shows to the Cambridge Junction quite a lot because they put children's theatre on there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, it's not a million miles away. And and certainly, as I say, over the last kind of 10 years, um, Cambridge is a place where I will, if I'm driving back from London or somewhere, I will check if there's a session on. So I often go to the Black Fen Folk Club or Cambridge Folk Club. They used to be a nice music night at Hot Numbers Cafe. And so various places I try and um, dip into if I can. And it's just nice to be to meet other musicians and to be part of different music scenes. There's quite a few musicians now in Cambridge that I've over the years become friends with. So like Hannah Sanders and Ben Savage, David Savage. Um, what else is there? There's quite a few actually. <laughs> <laughs> And do you find uh, being closer to the coast um, with uh, the seaside and sunsets gives you ideas to write a song? It does, yeah. And it, and it's also made me more interested in, in folk songs about the sea. So there's so many folk songs about sailors and fishermen and about the sea. 
and women's laments, you know, the woman left on the shore kind of thing. And a mm-hmm. lot, in fact, well, you kind of, mm-hmm. I joke about this, but I think since I've lived here, because I spent so much time walking on the beach, I've, I'm in danger of becoming a character from a folk song as I walk forlornly on the, on the shore looking at the fishermen kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, so definitely moving. I've lived, so as I said, I've lived in Norfolk over 20 years in Norwich and various little villages around Norfolk. I've lived in Cromer just nearly eight years. Mm-hmm. And living next to the sea it's the first time I grew up as I say in the Midlands so quite far from the sea and I'd always loved the sea as a child and so moving next to the sea as 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 an adult it kind of felt like um like when you're a kid and you you kind of almost want to run away from when you've been on holiday you don't want to go back home and you want to run away and go back to the sea I think living next to the sea maybe for like oh I've done that kind of running away from home and living next to the sea thing <laughs> I used to think like <laughs> a child. and so I think once you live next to the sea you never want to live in anywhere else it's really it's a huge force my house on day like today where it's quite windy and stormy I can hear the sea in my house mm-hmm. and it is just amazing I mean I, it has given me ideas to write my own music I've got several unfinished songs in my head so I've not made a new album for quite a few years because I've been busy with other things. But mm-hmm. I ha- I on each album I make, I always try and do one or maybe two of my own songs amongst the traditional ones. And I definitely have got at least two or three ideas for songs about the sea. And again, I sometimes in my recordings, I've talked about the unusual way that I record things with double tracking and layering up instruments and creating a strange sound. But I often use recordings of sounds from my locality. So often Cromer church bells have featured on some of my recordings and the sound of the sea itself and the sound of the seagulls. So, yeah, I've definitely I've got ideas. I've got like a tune. I've got some unfinished words for several songs about the sea but who knows whether they will ever get finished or when <laughs> I'm I hope they will it's just I think it's fine though sometimes I think some people get really impatient that you have to do everything now 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 and I've been like that but as I've got older I've realized well actually sometimes it might feel like things have gone from your life forever so I think I mentioned that at times in my life mm-hmm. i stop playing the guitar and stop singing and think oh well, that's done now but things always come back you don't expect yes. them to but things come back my sister had a thing recently so I mentioned she was a very good classical musician when we were children she was very good at the flutes like you know kind of kind of child prodigy level she she got very quickly <laughs> to grade eight at the flute and her flute teacher wanted her to be in the Nottingham Philharmonic Orchestra and all of these things and then quite suddenly she just gave it all up one day and for years hasn't played but recently um so in the last few years she just started playing the flute again out of the blue and it's not gone away it's all still there so I you know I think that's lovely and the same has happened to me with things and I now feel the same about songs if I have an idea for a song and it doesn't come out straight away it's not the end of the world because I I trust that it won't totally be lost it will come out at some point when I least expect it probably so this the inspiration is there at least the inspiration is there (laughs) oh yeah I mean I'm so glad of living next to the sea I think particularly Um, I've always appreciated living next to the sea since I moved here but I think you know the last year year or so we've had with the lockdown I'm just 
so glad I'm here. I live on my own and going out for walks on the beach when, you know, we've only been allowed to do our one daily exercise. That has just been... The second part of my interview with Yuema Kawaya in the next episode. <laughs>